Wow, what a time of worship. Thank you, Joe, for that encouragement. Oh. That can't be right. Hold on, it's going to work. There we got it, all right. He gave each of us a song. To some of us, he gave a voice. And so I'm really grateful to, to Joe. I'm grateful, Scott and Emily, for your singing this morning. Um, boy, it's great to worship and to hear your voices and just to sing together. Uh, it's great to be back with you this morning. I, was, um, I had an opportunity to preach last week at our Sending Campus, the Whittier Hills location, and I was there last week, and it was great to be there, and it was great to see some faces I haven't seen in a long time, and to tell them, kind of give them an update on what's going on with their extended family here in La Habra. It was a joy to be there. I'm really grateful to Joaquin, who was here with you last week, and I, and I have heard, taught you all how to order in a Mexican restaurant. If you, if you weren't here, you just have to go and listen online and hear that. But I'm grateful to Joaquin for being here, and I'm grateful for his enthusiasm. I don't know how many of you know him, but his enthusiasm is contagious. He's excited about the impact that Redemption Hill Church will have uptown and at Whittier Hills and here in La Habra. So it's exciting to be around somebody like that. And this morning, our passage gives us an opportunity to think about our impact, to think about our mission. It gives us an opportunity to reflect on the reality of being here in La Habra as a church. Not so much on the why we're here. We've talked about that as a church family, why we're here, but more on the day-to-day -day practical reality of the fact that we are here. So what does it look like for us as the family of God to be the church in La Habra? Before we look at where we are as a church, I want to look at where we are in Acts. And before we look at where we are in Acts, I want to look at where we've been in the book of Acts. Because we're well into the book of Acts now in our series, and I think it's about time that we kind of remember back to where we've been and what we've seen through the book of Acts. We have said, if you've been with us here for any time at all, that we would summarize the book of Acts by saying it's about a group of ordinary people equipped with an irresistible message, doing extraordinary things through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of how we've summarized the whole book. And if you remember, we've said it's really God's work. It's really the continuation of the ministry of Jesus, but it's, it's a group of people who are surrendered to the Spirit who are invited to participate in the work that God is doing. And we see this group of people and we see what they're doing in the name of Jesus through the power of the Spirit to change the world. Through the first few chapters of Acts, we witness the explosive growth of the church. We see the Spirit of God moving in people and in the church and drawing in tons of people into the church as it grows. And we see people responding to the message of the gospel and they're reorienting their whole life around Jesus, around the message. And then we see a group of people that through the Spirit are willing to go out and proclaim that message and a group of people who are willing then to care for the family of God as they do that. We see people spreading the gospel, but we see them caring for each other as they go out and do that. Before Christmas, if you can remember that far back, 
I know for some of you it feels like forever ago. Probably for my kids it feels like forever ago. For me it feels like last week. (laughs) It was Christmas. But if you can remember that far back, we saw how as the church grows, resistance and opposition grows. We saw that it seems like the more effective God's people are in proclaiming the good news, the more effective God's people are in getting the message out, the more resistance and opposition they get. And we saw that at first, for those who were opposed to the message of the gospel, at first it was an annoyance. This new group of believers was annoying to them, and then it became more of a problem. Ultimately, it became a threat to them. And then finally, we see that resistance, that opposition become outright persecution. And Luke, in the book of Acts, records the stoning of Stephen, Stephen the martyr in Acts chapter 7, and at that point, the whole game changes. The game changes for those that are opposed to the gospel, and the game changes for those who claim Jesus as their Savior, because all of a sudden now, they're, they're in grave danger. They are under threat. They're being persecuted for what they believe. And what we see through this is it actually fulfills the command of Jesus, that Jesus said, I want you to go from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the end of the earth, telling people the good news of salvation through my son. And so under persecution, the church spreads out and we see it go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Remember, we saw Philip take the gospel to Samaria, the historical enemy of Israel, and we see them receive Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. And then we see Philip minister to the Ethiopian, the literal ends of the earth. The gospel goes out to everybody. In spite of all the hardship, because the work is hard and the struggle is real for these people, we've seen them give up things that they care about. We've seen that the work is difficult. There's not just opposition, there's imprisonment, there's beating, there's people being stoned to death for their faith in Jesus. We've seen people leave their homes, we've seen people leave their friends, all of their comforts. But in spite of the struggle, in spite of the hardship, there's victory. Because everywhere they go, people are proclaiming the message of the good news of Jesus and people are coming to faith in him. You remember Um, It's not just a few people, it's a lot of people. It seems like every chapter in Acts ends with a great number of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And you remember just a few weeks ago, Saul, the great persecutor of the church, comes to faith in Jesus Christ. We see Peter doing miracles in the name of Jesus. We see him raise a man who's been paralyzed for eight years, and a bunch of people come to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of the testimony of that. We see him in the name of Jesus raise a young woman back to life from the dead. And because of that testimony, people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So there's hardship, but there's victory. And through the first 10 chapters of Acts that we've gone through together, we see the difficulties and the hardships that are experienced by believers. And then we see the victories. We see the power of the message that's going out. And we see the continuation of the ministry of Jesus and we see the care of the family of God for each other. And so this morning, that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the tension between the proclamation of the gospel, the mission of God's family, and how difficult that is, and how God's family cares for each other. Because here's the truth, 
The mission of God's family can be discouraging and uncomfortable. Yet, the family of God can be encouraging and comforting. That's the tension I want to explore this morning. That the mission of God can be discouraging and uncomfortable, but the family of God can be encouraging and comforting. Before we open the word this morning, I wonder if you would pray with me before we turn to Acts chapter 11 this morning and continue our series. Father, we come before you this morning and we just ask that you would speak to us through your word. We thank you for your word and for what it teaches us and for what we learn about you. Pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning and help us to focus our minds on your mission. And as a family of believers, Lord, would you help us to be a people that care about your mission and about your family. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 11. We're going to be in the last half of Acts chapter 11 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you here this morning, we have them available to you in the aisle here. So you can raise your hand. We'll pass one down. If you want to get up and get one, that would be totally appropriate to do. So feel free to do that. If you'd rather just listen, that's fine. But if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we just want you to know that that's there and available for you. And you're welcome to take it home with you as our gift to you. We'd like you to have a copy of God's Word. This morning, we're going to look at the last half of chapter 11. If you're using our Bible, that's going to be page 920. And if you were to just read our passage today, it's only 11 verses. It's, it would be a little confusing not because it's difficult to understand, it's actually pretty straightforward, but it's a little confusing to know what we're supposed to take from this. What is it that we're supposed to take home with us when we read this passage? There's a lot of good stuff in here, but it's a little dense. To illustrate this, <clears throat> I went to a very good commentary, and um, I borrowed their summary of the main idea of this passage. These specific 11 verses I just took their summary of the main idea for you. So if you're a note taker, if you would just jot this down, um, this will help you. Um, the missionary proclamation of the church is empowered by God, driven by outreach across cultural boundaries, consolidated by competent preachers, supported by teamwork, and assisted by the solidarity of believers and churches. Should I slow down? You want to... What'd you get? The missionary proclamation... Just kidding. So... It's actually an excellent summary. It's very precise, in fact. The only difficulty for us this morning is that the summary of the main idea is five main ideas, because there's a lot in here. There's a lot in here. I think for us this morning, there's a clear message in this passage that's particularly helpful for where we are as a church. And instead of, um, instead of writing that down, if you got all of that, just cross that out for a minute. And I'm just going to give you two words Instead, this will be easier because we actually don't give you a ton of room to take notes. So two words will be easier than that one. I want you to write these words down, mission and morale. This morning we're going to talk about the mission of God and the morale of his family. For the followers of Jesus, God cares about our mission and God cares about our morale. And if you're not familiar with the morale, the term, what we're talking about, just your state of well-being, <laughs> your mental well-being, especially in face of hardship. And we're going to unpack that as we walk through the passage this morning, but let's get into the text 
And let's look at where we see this in the passage this morning. We're going to be in chapter 11, starting in verse 19. And if you just read along with me. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. I want you to look at this. The gospel is going out as a direct result of persecution. That's what it says. Because of the stoning of Stephen, people are driven out of Jerusalem and they're proclaiming the gospel as they go. And now these particular believers are driven to the north, to what we know as Syria. In fact, Antioch is at this time the capital of the Roman province of Syria, if you're familiar with your geography at all. And Luke makes an interesting distinction here. The people that are going out are proclaiming the gospel to the Jews. But there are a group of people, it says, from Cyprus and Cyrene, who are proclaiming the gospel to everyone else also, <laughs> to the Hellenists, it said. So not just the Jewish people. Cyprus is an island just off of Syria. Cyrene is like in North Africa. And so these people are going and proclaiming the gospel to the Greeks as well. And it says a great number of people were coming to faith in Jesus, which, it, like we said, it seems like every chapter, every paragraph that Luke writes now ends with this, a great number of people coming to faith in Jesus. So we see here in Luke's account that the dispersion of the gospel is painful. It's prompted by pain, but it's purposeful because the gospel is going out. God's using a difficult encounter to further his kingdom, and he's doing that through people who are remaining faithful to proclaim the gospel despite the hardship. The mission of God is not easy. It's difficult. God's using it anyway. There's a reality to the persecution of the followers of Jesus Christ. We know that in Acts because we see it. We saw a guy stoned. That's not something we live with every day. In fact, we're quite insulated from that generally as believers in the U.S. Certainly, I feel I am. But I was reminded this week that we are not free from persecution because of faith, certainly not in our world. I'm reminded of the 21 Egyptian Christians who were killed last week by ISIS terrorists. And we look at a case like in the early church and we see the sovereignty of God because we see the stoning of Stephen and we see God redeem this horrendous act and use it for the purpose of spreading his gospel. And so we see God in his sovereignty able to do that. And so when we think of those young men who were killed, before we become too disheartened by that, I think it's important for us to remember that we serve the same God. The same God who redeems the stoning of Stephen is able to redeem the death of these 21 Christian Egyptian men. He is the same sovereign God today. It doesn't take away the heartache for us. It doesn't take away the sadness. But it also doesn't leave us without hope. In fact, I read this article this week that's written by the brother of two of those men who were killed. And I have summarized this article here, but let me just read it to you. This amazed me. The brother of two of the 21 Coptic Christians murdered in Libya last week has thanked their killers for including the men's declaration of faith in the video they made of their beheadings. 
speaking on a live prayer and worship program, Bashir Kamel said that he was proud of his brothers, Bashoy Kamel and Samuel Kamel, ages 25 and 23, because they were a badge of honor to Christianity. Harrowing scenes of the murders have been seen around the world. The last words of some of those killed were, Lord Jesus Christ. Bashir Kamel thanked ISIS for not editing out the men's declaration of belief in Christ because he said this had strengthened his own faith. He added that the families of the expatriate workers are, listen to this, congratulating one another and not in despair. We are proud to have this number of people from our village who have become martyrs, he said. Since the Roman era, Christians have been martyred and have learned to handle everything that comes our way. This only makes us stronger in our faith because the Bible told us to love our enemies and bless those who curse us. That is an incredible perspective. It is incredibly accurate. It is incredibly Christ-like. And I think as the brother of two of those young men, I cannot imagine having that same perspective. But that is a perspective that's anchored in truth. This is a man who understands the God he serves. He understands what he requires and what he calls him to. And he understands that God can redeem the horrendous for his purpose. So we look at the believers in Acts and we see them overwhelmed and dispersed and persecuted. And yet we see God using it to advance his mission in the world. And we hear the same thing today. And we see the same thing today. Luke continues in verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Told you, Luke's saying it all the time now. People just keep coming to faith in Jesus because the message just keeps going out. The church in Jerusalem hears about what's happening in Antioch. They hear that people are coming to faith there, and so they send Barnabas to encourage them. And we've, we've seen Barnabas before in our journey through Acts, and we're going to see him again. But let me just remind you of a few places where we've seen him already. We saw Barnabas as a sacrificial giver in chapter 4 of Acts. He was one of the ones who gave to the mission of God at the very beginning. Chapter 4 says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, what a cool name, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is one of the men that goes out and gives of himself toward the mission of God. Then we see him again later in chapter 9. You remember when Saul becomes a believer and every, all the believers are afraid of him because they know what Saul has been about. It's Barnabas who bridges the gap. Chapter 9, when he had come, Saul, to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus." Saul wants to be with the believers. It's Barnabas who goes in and gives Saul's testimony for him and then says he's preaching in the name of Jesus. And so let's, he's one of us. It's Barnabas who bridges that gap. 
now we see him described here in chapter 11 very much the same way we saw Stephen described. A man, a good man, it says, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So Barnabas, the son of encouragement, is sent to the believers in Antioch to encourage them. And look at verse 23, look at what it says. It says that he sees the grace of God. He sees what God is doing among them. He rejoices. It says he's glad. He exhorted them. means he encouraged them to what? To remain faithful, to stay on target, to continue to pursue the mission because he knows it's going to be hard. And we see, again, a great many people come to faith. Barnabas encourages them. That's the morale piece. We talked about that. He's encouraging the family of believers to stay on mission. There we see it, the mission and the morale. We see at the very beginning of our passage this morning, the mission is hard. The mission is driven by persecution. God's using it. He's redeeming it. Now we see Barnabas as a part of the family of God coming in to encourage, to bring morale. But what is he encouraging them to do? Stay on mission. Mission and morale. Verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Barnabas sees the work that's being done in Antioch. He sees the ministry. And he sees the multitude of people coming to faith. And he sees the scope of ministry. Because if you're not familiar, which why would you be? Antioch is the third largest city in the world at this time. So imagine doing ministry like this in New York or in London, only bigger. Those are kind of references we have. I think third largest city is probably in Asia somewhere. But think about doing it in New York. Huge scope of ministry, tons of people. So what does Barnabas do? He goes and gets the smartest guy in the room. Says he goes and gets Saul. Why Saul? Because Saul is amazing. Saul has this unbelievable testimony, this incredible encounter with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. Not only that, he's a classically trained Jew. He's as Jewish as you get, and he's an unbelievable theologian. So Barnabas goes and gets Saul and says, let's do ministry together, and I've got a place we can do it, and it's Antioch, and you would not believe what God is doing there. And it says they go there and they do ministry together, teaching the believers, proclaiming Jesus to those who don't know him. It's discipleship and it's proclamation of the gospel. And it says at the end of that, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, we use that term all the time now. Hadn't used it before, and this is not a name they come up with for themselves. They're given this label. It's not really used in Scripture. In fact, we see it only three times in the whole New Testament. When Christians talk about themselves, they say that they're believers or they're followers of Jesus or they're brothers or servants or slaves of Jesus. They're called by outsiders, Christians. The thing to note here, I think for us, is that this speaks to the effectiveness of the ministry of the believers in Antioch. Can you imagine starting a club or a group in New York your club or group becomes so large that people outside of your club have to come up with a name for you. That's what we're seeing in Antioch. Their ministry is so widespread and so effective, people have to have a label for them. The Roman government has to have something to call them. And so they call them Christians. 
Not always in a good way, often in a derogatory way. Look at these last few verses now in chapter 11. It says, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So during the time where Barnabas and Saul are there doing their ministry, prophets are coming from Jerusalem, either driven out by the persecution or just coming because they hear of what God is doing in Antioch. And one of them, Agabus, stands up and gives this prophecy. It says, in the spirit, there's going to be this massive famine. It's going to affect everybody. And then Luke, the author, tells us this actually happened. Did you catch that? He's not talking about when the prophecy took place. He's talking about when the famine took place. This took place in the days of Claudius. Within a year of this prophecy, this famine hits, and it's devastating. So what do the believers do? What does the family of God do when someone in their midst stands up and says, God tells me there's going to be a huge famine? What do they do? They do what we see them do over and over and over in the book of Acts. They come together. They pool their resources. They say, how can we help? And so they send a gift to their brothers in Judea, and they send it in the hands of Barnabas and Saul and say, go help our believers, our brothers, because this is about to take place. Isn't that cool? It's not just, hey, let's pray for the other believers. That's effective, but they're going to give a tangible expression of their love and care for the family of God because they know this is going to happen. This is the gospel going out and the family of God caring for the family of God. I think we can look at a passage like this today and we can see a, a summary of events. We can look at the last half of chapter 11 and just say, okay, people went to Antioch. I get it. And it's good to know because Antioch is going to become a hub of ministry and it's going to become a very important city as we go through the book of Acts. Okay, that's, I understand that. Barnabas was nice. I get it. His name means he's nice to people. He's the son of encouragement. We've heard about him before. We know we're going to hear about him again. I get it. Summary of events. The church continues to grow. Luke will not f- let us forget that. He says it all the time. People keep coming to faith in Jesus. I get it. But we said at the beginning there were those two words we wanted to focus on this morning, mission and morale. And I want to look at where we see that in our passage this morning. Because as followers of Jesus, God cares about our mission The mission of God is to make disciples, and God cares very deeply about that. And his family, the church, ought to care very deeply about that as well. God was willing to go to great lengths to restore people to himself, to rescue people out of their sinfulness, to pay the price for our sin. Jesus took our place on the cross. We know that. That's how much God cares about the mission that he would send his son to take our place to restore us to himself, that he would pay the price of redeeming us from our sin. That was on God. That's how much he cares about his mission, his mission of restoring people and inviting them into his family, that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that God made a way for us to be with him. 
God said, I, I cared enough to crush my own son for you. That's how deeply I care about the mission. God has done the work. Jesus has redeemed us. And that's great news. And the mission of the church is to proclaim that news on his behalf. That's what we see happening in the book of Acts. People going out proclaiming that truth. Because John, because in the book of John it says, all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. How great is that? So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus and you're here just kind of checking it out or you want to hear more about what it is about, well, that's what it's about. That's the good news. That's the gospel that we talk about all the time. Jesus has redeemed us and invited us into his family. And as, as a family of people who believe that, we'd love to tell you about it. We would love to share that with you because God cares about that the most. And so as his children, that's what we ought to care about the most. So if you're here this morning and you know him, then God's saying, hey, care about what I care about. I want you to care about my mission. The work is hard. The struggle, the cost is real. The mission costs us something as followers of Jesus, and that's okay. Brother Yoon, a Chinese Christian, um, spent eight years in prison being tortured so far. <clears throat> and he says this, don't pray for the persecution to stop. We shouldn't pray for a lighter load to carry, but a stronger back to endure. Then the world will see that God is with us, empowering us to live in a way that reflects his love and power. Okay, I don't know if I could pray that. I don't know if I could pray that if I'm him, but I understand what he's saying. And there's truth to that. It's going to cost something to follow Jesus. It's going to be hard. We see the believers in Acts proclaiming the gospel, being driven by persecution and hardship. It's not easy. And that's okay. It's okay that it's not easy. It got, cost God everything. And he said it was worth it and he cares deeply about it. But I don't want to leave you with that this morning and just say, hey, it's going to be hard, so suck it up. Because I think often we can do that as the church and we can just say, hey, it's going to be hard, so deal with it. To the family of God, the mission is important. It's what God cares about the most. But the family of God is also important to God. God cares about our morale. He cares about how we're doing. The mission is costly. God cares about his family as they pursue that mission. He does. Doesn't mean he'll remove the hardship. Doesn't mean he'll make it easier. But it does mean he cares. We have the Holy Spirit, which Scripture refers to as the comforter. You ever catch that? The, the literal indwelling of the Spirit of God in the lives of believers, the Comforter. And then he gives us a family, a church family, to do it with and says, you care for each other because this is not going to be easy. If you pursue my mission, it'll be hard. So do it together and care for each other as you go. Look at Barnabas, the sacrificial giver, the unifying presence, bringing Saul and the apostles together the encourager, encouraging them, not just saying, hey, you're doing great. Saying, hey, you're doing great and keep doing it because the mission of God is of utmost importance. So be encouraged as you do it because it means something. 
This tension between mission and morale has never been more evident to me, has never been more apparent to me than it's been in the last six months. It has never been more apparent to me than since we started doing this in La Habra, church together. That's probably true for many of you too, because many of you have given up a comfortable situation to pursue the mission of God in La Habra. Many of you have left friends or things that were comfortable. Some of you left your homes, literally moved to La Habra because you felt God was calling you on mission here. It's cost you something. And it's hard. I know it's hard because we talk. (laughs) I talk with you. I know it's hard. And I know some of you are wondering, boy, was this the right thing to do? Was this the right choice? God, what are you doing? Because I am tired of loading and unloading the trailer. I love being with the kids, but when I'm with the kids, I miss my community here and I don't get to worship and I don't get to hear the word. And it costs me something to be there. Some of you are just going through a really difficult time. You've lost a job or struggling financially or you're hurting because someone in your life is hurting or you're losing someone that you love. We've asked each of you to join a life group. We've asked you to select a mission as a life group. And some of you are absolutely terrified of what your group is going to do and what we're going to ask you to do as a result of it, to be on mission in La Habra. And what does that look like? And that sounds really uncomfortable. The mission requires a lot of us. It's true. It costs something. And we get it. That's why God has given us a family. That's why he's given us a church to do this with We want to hold each other up. We want to care for each other. We want to pray for each other as we do it because the mission is important. And it's important for you to know that as a church, we're looking for ways to ease the burden where we can. It's important for you that you know we're trying to make it easier, make some of the commitments a little lighter if we can, find more people to help so that we can share the burden together to encourage you so that you can pursue the mission with joy Not just say, hey, put your head down and suck it up because God says to. Let's do it with joy. Let's have fun pursuing the mission of God and let's have fun carrying those burdens together. You pursue the mission and as a church, we'll work on the morale. We'll work on encouraging each other and holding each other up. But before we get too tired, before we start to feel too sorry for ourselves, I just want to remind you of a couple of things as we close this morning. Let's consider what God has already done in a very short amount of time. Do you know we have 180 people, actually a little more than that, over 180 people involved in life groups just here in La Habra? Do you know that that's more people than came to La Habra like five months ago? It's more people than we started with are connected in families that are pursuing a mission in La Habra and being discipled to maturity together. Isn't that cool? Do you know that we had our first baptisms last fall from this campus? Do you know we already have people signed up to do it again this year? And we're starting to plan that. Do you know we had almost 300 people in this room on Christmas Eve that heard the gospel? Some of them for the first time. Some of them now that are part of our family. They're here with us. So thank you. And we're excited that you're here and that's why we're here. We want to be like Barnabas. 
We want to give to the family of God sacrificially. We want to encourage one another to faithfully pursue the mission of God with a purpose because it's worth it. So this morning, Joe already prompted this. You have your connection card this morning. Would you just take that out? Most of you have already filled in a prayer request, and that's fine. I want to give you one last encouragement this morning. We want to pray for your encouragement as people who are pursuing the mission of God, and you can just assume that. Just assume we're praying for that, because that's what we want to be about as a family. More importantly, we want to pray that we would pursue the mission of God with joy. And what does that look like? Joe mentioned it this morning, we have one really tangible way for you to pursue the mission of God as a part of our family. And that's the um, evangelism training that's going to be taking place here starting next week. In a moment of surrender to the Spirit, I would just ask you, would you consider that? What does it look like to be on mission with God? What does it look like to proclaim the gospel? Some of you have never done it. Some of you have never been trained to do it. You're scared to death of doing it. And the last thing you're going to do is sign up for a class where they're going to make you do it. The mission of God is important. It's the most important thing to him. It ought to be the most important thing to us. So here's what I would say. God's tugging at your heart this morning saying, boy, get on mission with me. I want you to proclaim my good news because it's good news. It's great news and I want you to go out and share it. Then let us help you do it. The mission is important and we'll do it together. This is what our evangelism training looks like. We'll coach you up. We'll teach you how to share the gospel, and then we'll hold your hand and go out and do it with you. We'll show you how to do it first, and then we'll help you and encourage you to do it with us. We won't physically hold your hand if that makes you uncomfortable, but you get the idea. Mission and morale. It's why we're here. We're here for the mission of God. Let us help you pursue the mission of God with joy. So I would just say, if God's tugging at your heart right now, before you have a chance to think about it, before you have a chance to talk it over with your friends or with your family to justify a reason not to do it, I say, just write it on the card. Okay, I'm in. I'll do it. Or walk over to the information table and sign up and just say, I'm in. I'll do it. Against my better judgment, I want to be surrendered to the mission of God. (laughs) Would you do that this morning? Would you think about that? I'd love it if we were just overwhelmed and didn't have room for you. That'd be a cool problem for us to have as a church. Would you pray with me? Father God, it's not easy what you ask us to do, and yet it's very hard to complain to someone who would surrender his own son for us. So I just pray that you would move in our hearts, that you would make us passionate about what you're passionate about, that we would pursue your mission here, even if it's difficult, that you would give us joy in pursuing it, and that you would bring people into your family, that we might be able to write what Luke writes in Acts and say that many people came to faith in Jesus Christ because we were faithful to pursuing your mission. We love you and we thank you for loving us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.